This podcast is brought to you by Final Stretch Media. They gave me a voice. They turned my ideas into high-quality audio and video content. With their professional team, equipment, and expertise, they record, edit, and provide video and audio. Final Stretch Media has done a fantastic job with everything video and audio related for me. So if you ever find yourself in the need, uh, you can find their information in the show notes. This podcast is also brought to you by Quickly Brain Racers, the first ever live racing competition for the brain. Download their app and play live this weekend on an iOS device against the world. I have raced and it's really, really cool. So definitely check them out. You can find the link to the app in the show notes. Also, don't forget about our book, Thinking Critically, from fake news to conspiracy theories, using logic to safely navigate the information landscape. If you're interested in exploring how logic can be used to better help you to discern fact from fiction, the information landscape is perilous, but with the help of this book as your guide, you will always be able to find your way towards truth. It's available on Amazon today. Welcome back to another episode of Thinking Critically. Today, I am joined by Dr. Gerd Gigerenzer, who's the director of the Harding Center for Risk Literacy at the University of Potsdam, Faculty of Health Sciences, Brandenburg, and partner of Simply Rational, the Institute for Decisions. He is former director of the Center for Adaptive Behavior and Cognition at the Max Planck Institute for Human Development and at the Max Planck Institute for Psychological Research in Munich, professor of psychology at the University of Chicago, and John M. Olin, distinguished visiting professor, School of Law at the University of Virginia. In addition to his many academic achievements, his award-winning popular books, Calculated Risks, Gut Feelings, The Intelligence Intelligence of the Unconscious, and Risk Savvy, How to Make Good Decisions, have been translated into 21 languages. His academic books include Simple Heuristics That Make Us Smart, Rationality for Mortals, Simply Rational, and Bounded Rationality. In Better Doctors, Better Patients, Better Decisions, he shows how better informed doctors and patients can improve healthcare while reducing costs. Together with the Bank of England, he is working on the project Simple Heuristics for a Safer World. And most recently, and why he's joining me today, he's written the book, How to Stay Smart in a Smart World, uh, which we'll be discussing. Anyway, Gerd, welcome so much. I'm glad to be with you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's quite the, list of, uh, quite the list of accomplishments there. And uh, I'm really interested to dig into, like I said, uh, your most recent book, and that's kind of why I'm having you on here today, How to Stay Smart in a Smart World. But before we do that, I'm always, whenever I have scientists on, I'm always curious to learn about kind of your origins of interest when it comes to science. So like, how did you become interested in, sci in science? And uh, eventually, how did you discover that it's psychology is what you, uh, what you wanted to do? Hmm. Yeah. So uh, in an earlier career, I was a musician. So playing okay. <laughs> the banjo, guitar, and a number of other instruments, and basically earning my studies. And at some point, so when I was nearing uh, finishing my dissertation, I had to make a decision. Should I stay on the stage and earn at this time much more money than in academia? Or should I take a risk and try an academic career? So that's one of the decisions under uncertainty. And so I took the risk. And uh, for me, the music was the safe option. And 
academic career was the risky option. So that made me interested in how do people make decisions under uncertainty? So when you can know what the future brings. And, and it's also, I can only recommend everyone, observe yourself when you make important decisions. You yourself are a great resource of knowledge. Yeah, that's really interesting that you thought that the risky path was academia versus yeah. the the musical area. Other people, I think, a number of people would think would actually be the other way around. No, no, I, but, I couldn't know, know whether I will ever become a professor. I couldn't know, but but I knew the business of, of music. Yeah, that's true. Okay, that makes sense because you are already solidified in a music path, yeah. Uh, yeah. making money, and then going the academic route that was many years off and then the final resort result couldn't be known whether or not you'd become a professor. So would you say that uh, that's what sparked your interest in going the decision-making uh, decision route? I mean, I'm, a, I'm guessing that your dissertation was in psychology, right? Yeah, it was in psychology. Okay, yeah. so it, was it in it, making yeah. area or was it in a different uh, different area of psychology that you were yeah, studying? I, I was very much interested at the beginning in uh, the methods of science and also psychology. How can we know something? How do we get away from mere opinion? And the dissertation was about these issues. How can we know something? And uh, what are the methods that can we trust? And uh, that's still an important issue that also relates to the book, How to Stay Smart in a Smart World, where we always need to ask the question, can we trust this information? Who is behind the information? Mm -hmm. Who wants to persuade us to believe into a certain product? Yeah, and these are, these are super important questions that we definitely need to be asking ourselves uh, regularly. And uh, so speaking of your book, so at some point you, you know, you decided that you wanted to go to the academic route. You became a professor, and you're now in decision making as a career. That's what you focus on. And you've written a number of wonderful books. I was looking at them, and I definitely have added them to my reading list of books that I want to that I want to dig into at some point. But why did you feel the need? So I mean, all of the books that you've written for the public so far are in the area of decision making. Why did you feel the need to write this particular book, How to Stay Smart in a Smart World? Yeah. What was the impetus for that? So I believe strongly that a democracy will only work if people are informed and have the courage to make their own decisions. And at the same time, uh, almost nobody's being taught about the psychology of decision-making, and also how to uh, find reliable information. And so that's a background. Uh, investing in people, that's uh, uh, yeah, an enlightenment dream, as opposed to nudging people into a certain direction where you want to have them be, uh, which I think is not uh, the uh, best way to uh, Get an enlightenment, uh, get the enlightenment working. Uh, so that's my basic motivation. And the books like uh, uh, Calculated Risk, 
That's the American title. The British is reckoning with risk, but the American publisher didn't want to publish a book that has the word reckoning in it because they think Americans <laughs> will buy that. Uh, so don't okay. buy books. <laughs> it's the same book. <laughs> uh, okay. That that uh, is about how to help doctors and patients understand evidence. So it's for health, and also from my work with uh, with lawyers and judges to uh, uh, to help them to understand evidence, such as what DNA evidence means. And uh, Gut Feeling is another book that looks at the other side, that many decisions are intuitive. And that's nothing wrong per se, but intuition is based on years of experience and it's not uh, God's voice or uh, a sixth sense or something that only women have. We men also have intuitions. So it's a program helping people to into to get an access to psychology, what we know, and use it for your best. I love it. Yeah, I think I think that's uh, I think that's a wonderful uh, mission, and encapsulated in uh, encapsulated in all of your books that you have written. And one thing uh, one thing that you had mentioned there was nudging. So I know that in the behavioral sciences, which is very you know, which is a tag, which is essentially like a fusion of psychology uh, with business. Uh, they always talk about nudging and decision making and how this can be used in public policy. I know that this was used. I don't know. I want. I don't want to say extensively, but it was definitely a part of President Obama's uh, kind of uh, what he did when he was uh, when he was president. This was used in his administration. Uh, this tactic, but I'm curious as to why. Why it is that you're not a fan of the uh, the nudging? Because hmm. yeah. you had you had mentioned something there. It's true. I'm not a fan of nudging. I'm a fan of making people smart. Okay. Helping them to make their own decision. Nudging is the opposite. It means it is based on a philosophy that uh, it basically argues if you make it simple, uh, people don't know how to deal with risks, and second. Uh, uh, there is little hope to educate them. So third, the government needs to step in and use psychological techniques to steer people in a direction where people would want to be if they would be rational. That's basically the idea of, of nudging. And it's a kind of soft paternalism. So as opposed to strong paternalism, where you have just laws. Okay? Um, but what it does not do, it doesn't help to, to understand that people understand themselves. And also, um, so the, the, the underlying uh, picture of people is not I am happy with and also doesn't correspond to the reality. So it's true. The first thing that people are, uh, are not always good in uh, understanding risk, but the second one proposition that there would there would be no hope for us hmm, is mm -hmm. clearly wrong. Hmm. We have shown yeah, that, for instance, uh, already fourth graders can be can learn how to do very sophisticated statistical uh, insights or intuitions like uh, Bayesian reasoning. But can everything be done the moment yeah? you take care that how the information is presented fits to the human mind. And so uh, the 
uh, one could do all of that. And we need to invest in people and not in nudging people. And finally, there's just a paper out by uh, uh, the first author is Maya, and they show across all the um, nudging studies they have looked, huh? they, they ask the question, does nudging work? And there's a previous um, paper that concludes that it works somehow in many domains. And this new paper has looked at the so-called publication bias because studies that don't find an effect have a lower chance to be published. And they're corrected for this bias and they conclude there's no evidence for nudging across the domains. So why don't we do something that works? and that actually helps people. And that's that's why I think we, we should invest in making people smart rather than nudging them. Yeah, I categorically agree with that about uh, making people smarter or, or teaching them. Um, I, I definitely don't think that there's any harm in teaching people um, these techniques that you're talking about and how to yeah. make better decisions uh, yeah. versus somebody having to step in and play uh, play like a father role to direct mm -hmm. the decisions that are being made yeah. by uh, the general populace. You know, particularly mm -hmm. what I said too, I mean, about if nudging research is um, suffering from publication bias, and then there's really no noticeable effect after you correct for the publication bias. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a very serious concern. And I know that's something that science has been grappling with for, um, for a while now, uh, definitely over the past decade, we've realized that there's more and more of this publication bias and perhaps some some effects. And I know I hate to pick on psychology, but I know that I know that um, psychology has had some of this other domains too, uh, but definitely where some effects that we thought were real in the past suffered from uh, some sort of publication bias or some some other type of bias, and eventually uh, the uh, the effect goes away once you actually uh, look closer at it. So. But um, all right, well, super, super interesting. Yeah, I, I just was really curious as to your thoughts there because you had mentioned you had mentioned nudging and you briefly talk about that in your book as well, about how you're not a big fan of that. But yeah, you definitely wouldn't need nudging if everyone was if you were to train everyone in these particular types of techniques that you're talking about at an early age, yeah. uh, then they could just go throughout their life uh, knowing yeah. these things. Right. But anyway, well, why, don't we, why don't we teach uh, children and adolescents? Huh? Uh, statistical thinking in an interesting way. It's really happening. We teach uh, uh, the mathematics of certainty, so algebra, geometry, trigonometry, which is of use, yeah, for a few of us. But statistical thinking would be of use for everything. So the corona pandemics have shown it. It's all about numbers that make us fear and hope. But few understand the numbers, including politicians. And also many doctors don't understand numbers, not because they are something, there's something wrong in their brains as the nudging philosophy assumes, but because they're never being taught. So I've taught, and also the Harding Center for Risk Literacy, we've taught thousands of doctors in the continuing medical education, very simple things. So they know that the test makes two errors what this error rates are named. So misses and false alarm, what does rates mean? If you think that every doctor knows that, no. So uh, it could be done, 
And it's a project for science to get a little bit more enlightened and be able to see so behind the numbers and who is behind them who wants to seduce you into something. So that's the, the, the key idea. And the, uh, so if you, if you want a nudging example, the uh, probably the most um, well-cited example is about defaults and organ donation. So the, the idea that some countries have a default, you need to opt in. Yeah? Yes. Otherwise, you're not a donor. And others have uh, defaults, you need to opt out. And if you don't, then you are a donor. And, and then, of course, the, uh, the potential do donor rates are hugely different between neighboring countries like Germany, Austria, and so on. So, uh, because few people opt out and few, few opt in. So that has been celebrated as a great example for nudging. You just change the default. You convince governments to change the default so that everyone is a donor unless the person opts out. Now, but the problem is not potential donors. The problem is real donors. Are there also more real donors than potential donors? And a recent study, in, the, in 35 OECD countries, as compared, half of them were opt-in, opt-out. Is there a difference between actual donors? No, there's no difference. So it's not this cheap solution. And the problems are, are not in people's mind here, but in the organization of the entire system that carries, say, a motorbike accident personnel into a hospital and that there is an organization that is a donor, uh, a receiver waiting and so on. And that has to do with incentive structures that are not there, with the usual chaos in hospitals and other things. And in general, nurturing also uh, by looking in the individual mind as the source of societal problems here that people die waiting for a donor, uh, detracts us from the real problems, which are outside the mind, in the organization, in political decisions, and in other uh, public decisions that that where the problem is. And it's, it is a blaming individual minds is a bit strange for people who are, uh, every economist would think differently. So that's just another uh, example of that, but maybe let's leave nudging aside. Huh? <laughs> let's talk about the important things. Huh? Yes, all right, all right, sounds good, yeah. All right, all right, moving on from nudging then, because uh, yeah, I, su I suppose I could talk about that all day because I find it's a fascinating topic, but okay, digging into your book. So at the very beginning of your book, How to Stay Smart in a Smart World, you talk about artificial intelligence, okay? And I am just curious, as to, like, you, you talk a little bit about uh, the definition of what artificial intelligence is. So what the average person thinks that artificial intelligence is versus the various stages of AI and where we are currently at. So maybe we could start the conversation there. Yeah, so there are AIs, not AI. That's the first thing. Okay. The, original, the original AI was, not what machine learning is today. It was the, a, the I in AI meant human intelligence. 
So Herbert Simon and Alan Newell, already in the 1950s, started a program. And the basic idea is how to make computers smart. How to do it? You find out how human experts make decisions. And you extract these heuristics. Heuristics is a name for rules of thumb, how to deal with uncertainty. And you program that into computers to make them smart. That was the original idea of AI. Now, the, um, these are rules. And at the Max Planck Institute for Human Development, we have uh, gone deep into these rules and they're mostly very simple rules. And they work for a number of problems, but not for everything. And the, uh, in, in the last yeah, uh, decades, machine learning has particular deep artificial neural networks have uh, lived, um, yeah, and they're also known since many, many years. Huh? But thanks to comput computational power that has immensely increased, so they have come, made a comeback. And that's typically a type of AI that is not informed by psychology, by the way the human brain works, but it's basically statistics. It's statistics, it is a, an artificial network is something, uh, if you ever studied statistics, it's a, a kind of uh, sophisticated, um, nonlinear, uh, multivariate regression, okay. and, uh, yeah, which nobody would ever call intelligence. And it just, it does correlations. So that's what the deep neural network does. Yeah? It is extremely powerful in finding correlations and that can be words that are followed by certain other words or sentences followed by other sentences and, and can even create text like natural language programming. And the text reads great. So if you have uh, GPT-3 or BERT, uh, so these uh, systems, um, and they can reproduce, they basically reproduce from correlation between words and, and parts of sentences, uh, intelligent new text. But that doesn't mean that such a system, such a deep neural network understands what it's creating. That's the big difference to humans. So for instance, a recent test uh, had asked um, uh, GPT-3, which is one of the most powerful uh, natural language system, uh, the following question. When was Egypt the second time transported over the uh, uh, the, uh, the Golden Gate Bridge, I'll repeat here. When was Egypt transported for the second time over the Golden Gate Bridge? Which makes no sense at all. Every human would recognize that. But the uh, neural network doesn't and finds the answer on uh, November 16, 2017. So it doesn't understand that the question makes no sense. It doesn't understand that its answer makes no sense, but it can create, unless you ask these pointed questions, if you ask a, a sensible question, it can create great text. So I illustrate that. So that it, it's important to realize that this type of deep neural network 
AI is about statistical correlations, period. Yeah, and uh, what we know from science is that correlation doesn't always mean causation. So yes. it, it, might, it might be nice to be uh, creating all of these different types of correlations, but it doesn't necessarily mean that there is any real substance there. As you yeah. illustrated in that example with uh, Egypt over, would you say the Golden Gate Bridge? <laughs> so uh, yeah, that's makes, just, um, yeah. it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so as far as where we are, so I think when people think AI, they, they really think that it's like working human intelligence and we're clearly not there. What is, where are we like as far as the most, most advanced AI currently operable um, in the world? I mean, is it mostly all just this machine learning or do we have some sort of hints right now of anything that resembles some sort of intelligence? Yeah. So at the moment, deep learning, uh, that's basically a deep neural artificial networks, is has made in the last 10 years the big successes. And, uh, but again, uh, it by just more computing power, it will get faster, but not smarter. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's important to see. So uh, if we want something that really resembles human intelligence, that's not the way to get there. So we need to, to find a new way, and that's what I call psychological AI, to program what humans can do into computers. And, and not just do statistical uh, yeah, learning. Okay. Yeah. So right, that makes sense. I think it's the future, but it's hard. But one needs to ask the question, otherwise we not, will not get there. No, absolutely. And I think that there's uh, a number of techno, I call them like te techno optimists or people like say Silicon Valley types who are like, oh yeah, AI is just around the corner. And it's probably in reality much further away than people realize, at least the artificial intelligence when people think of, um, when, when people colloquially speak of artificial intelligence, like an, an actual um, synthetic intelligent, uh, intelligent form or something, something close to what humans have. And I think that that's probably many years away. Yeah, many people, uh, they uh, confuse movies with reality. It's in the movies, but it's typically played by a human. Yeah, <laughs> this is so, true. So uh, a standard argument is the following. Namely, first, humans have... Uh, so a standard argument is the following. AI has beaten the best humans at chess and go. Second, computational power increases every couple of years and doubles. And third, therefore, uh, the, uh, soon uh, AI will be able to do everything that humans can do. So be so-called a channel intelligence of that. So the two premises are true. So AI has been the best humans at chess and go, and also computational power doubles every couple of years, but the conclusion is not true. And why? Because uh, AI now meaning here, uh, machine learning and deep neural networks can do some things very good, but not everything. And 
the principle, the first principle to understand what he can do is the stable world principle. So the stable world principle says, if a problem is well-defined and stable, stable meanings the future is like the past, then uh, deep neural networks, that is statistical machinery, will outperform humans by far. So I wouldn't be surprised if soon we have a machine that can do all well-defined two-person games better than humans. But when we have to face problems that are not stable, where tomorrow can be different from today and in an unpredictable way, and also where uh, the situation is not well-defined, but ill-defined as typically in human interaction, then uh, the advantage of AI disappears. And here is what humans can do well. So the human brain didn't evolve to play chess or well-defined game. It evolved to deal with uncertain situation, with weather, with animals, with other humans, or with oneself, which is also a source of surprises or can be. So, um, and, and if, you, if you make the distinction between these types, then you understand huh, where, uh, so uh, deep neural networks will succeed. That is, for instance, in uh, industry applications, where the situation is stable and well-defined, and where machine learning will not likely succeed, that's in, for instance, predicting human behavior. So in my book, How to Stay Smart in a Smart World, I have a number of examples of attempts to predict recidivism. So whether if you, if you stay in trial and an algorithm predicts whether you will commit another trial, you will uh, commit another crime in the next two years, or you will, uh, or something else. And that's a situation where these algorithms on better is very simple, uh, psychological AI, which means you just look at age and previous convictions, mm -hmm. and maybe gender. So that's what it is. And uh, moreover, the, these, uh, algorithms that are uh, sold to uh, uh, to judges and to courts and to police, they are opaque. Nobody knows what's inside. And, uh, and that's one of the reasons probably because they're expensive and you don't know what's going on. It's looked like a crystal ball and where people then think it must be great. So that's an and uh, one of the illusions. And the stable world principle gives you a first orientation about what's likely to be true and what, what is just PR or advertisement claims. Yeah, definitely. I mean, from your book and I was reading and I can definitely, and I can see this in real world applications, you know, this, the stable world principle is really, really important for what our current AI or basically these deep neural networks, <clears throat> um, they, they need it in order to be, uh, be successful. And you were talking about countless, uh, countless examples presented in your book about where these neural networks or AI uh, fail. 
Um, one of the one of the more salient examples that I remember was in the uh, was in chapter four when you're talking about self-driving cars mm -hmm. and how uh, the autopilot was just around the corner, like fully autonomous type of. And, you know, you still have types like Elon Musk saying that it's just right around the corner. And we had that one example when Uber they were doing it wasn't fully autonomous, but you had the driver, but like the driver wasn't paying attention or something like that, and. Mm -hmm. Um, it failed and it, it killed someone. Hmm. Um, so that, that was a great example of where you have uncertainty in the real world because out driving in the car, I mean, there's countless scenarios that you're going to run into that have to be processed. And the uh, the machine failed at that point and somebody died. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was pretty bad. Yeah. But one could object that also happens to human drivers. They also kill horses. But the general point is, again, here, uh, it's supposed to a stable world principle and a second principle in my book. It's called the adapt to AI principle. And that's more interesting. So you're right. Elon Musk makes basically every year the announcement that next year there will be uh, fully autonomous uh, level five cars. What is a level five car? So that's very important because there's confusion about terms and the confusion is sometimes deliberate. So um, level five is a self-driving car, which is defined as a car that drives without a human paying attention to what's going on on the street and safely under all traffic conditions like rain, hail, and yeah, whatever. Uh, we do not have level five cars. We have level two cars at the moment. So level one is just one system, autopilot, for instance. Level two is an integration of several systems in order to say, do automatic parking. Level three would be a car that can do everything that human drivers do, but still needs a human driver to pay full attention to what's happening to the road because the system might fail and then the human driver. So a level four is what I think the most interesting one. It's a car without a human driver that can drive safely only in restricted areas. And we do have some level four cars. So uh, for instance, in, um, uh, on airports where everything is uh, made uh, safe. And so my prediction what will happen is that Elon Musk will soon give up his promises about level five. And he's one of the last one who trumpets that, but he gets lots of new news coverages and um, will, uh, reorient his business to what is anyhow doing, creating level three or level four cars. And the level four car is the much more fundamental change in our lives. That level five is just a toy. You hang around in your car and you read your email, great. This is not a big thing. But level four means that we have to adapt to the limited possibilities of autonomous cars. That means that we will have to rebuild our cities so that in those areas, level four cars can drive safely. That will mean no human driver on the road. 
no cyclists, no pedestrians, no animals, no anything else. It will have to fence, be fenced off. And it also may mean at the end that humans are no longer allowed to drive because we are the greatest problem for an autonomous car. So that's the principle of adapt to AI. AI is not just an assistance system. It's usually thought of like your Alexa or uh, in, in a car, an assistance system, but it uh, will force us to adapt. And it's not the first time. So for instance, in already in the uh, early 19th century in Paris, there was a huge traffic chaos and the authorities tried to put up rules like drive on the right side. People didn't like these rules, but eventually they had to follow them and they get disciplined. And just like uh, years before, the Paris authorities put in rules like that you, um, you should stop emptying your chamber pots hmm, out of the window onto the road. <laughs> okay. People were very reluctant to follow this. I just say that it's nothing new. Technology will change us, will discipline us, make us more predictable. So AI can deal best with humans who are predictable. And that's also why so many of the big uh, tech companies trying to do everything to make us predictable. Yeah, that's really interesting what you said there about eventually the level four, where we'll have to engineer the environment in order yeah. to get these autonomous cars to work. So going back to what you're talking about with the stable world, we're essentially taking a uncertain uh, environment um, that's rather chaotic and then we're engineering it, we're making, we're making it more simple and predictable. So that way the future is much like the past. So therefore the systems can now, can now operate the way that we want them to. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah, my, I mean, I, I agree with you. I think that that probably will end up being the case because the, the amount of variables that you have to run through in order to predict what's going on in your average driving environment with humans being the largest threat to AI. Uh, yeah, it just, it almost seems like an insurmountable problem. <laughs> Maybe we'll do it, who knows? Maybe we'll do it someday. So, um, okay. So chapter, uh, so chapter, uh, chapter six of your book, you're talking about uh, big data and how big data was heralded as, and still is to a large degree, as kind of solving all of the world's problems. That if we just take these algorithms or these deep neural networks and we sift through data and we make all of these correlations, that it's going to basically, again, solve all of our problems and we don't need to worry about anything else. And at one point, uh, when this was first coming online, you even have large tech giants like Google and others saying that, well, I guess we don't, know, we don't need science anymore. Uh, because we can just look at all the data out there and we can make all of these correlations and we can just kind of predict what's going to happen in the future. And that turned out not to be the case. No, no. <laughs> that's, that's a, uh, would be a wonderful world if you just look at the data yeah? and then you know everything. It's not like that. You wouldn't make any discoveries. 
So if you, if you look, uh, just one example, if you would, would want to find out what gets certain countries more Nobel Prizes than other countries, so Nobel Prize per capita, and then you, you would sift of data, you would find a great predictor. It's chocolate, eating lots of chocolate. So the chocolate <laughs> consumption is highest in Switzerland, and Switzerland has per capita the largest number of Nobel laureates. And chocolate consumption is lowest in China, and it has the lowest number. So, so that's what you get with big data. And that's uh, correlation is not causation. So more to the point, uh, once again, uh, so take IBM's Watson. IBM Watson used big data for a game, so Jeopardy, and it did brilliantly in this game. And, beat the best humans. So here's the place where big data helps you. If you have a stable world where rules are well-defined and actually in the case of Jeopardy, the rules had to be modified to adapt to yeah, uh, what Watson can do. That's another thing. And then uh, the IB IBM's CEO, Gina Rometti, announced the big moonshot and Watson now was supposed to solve problems in cancer therapy, make recommendations of what, of what he knew nothing. And, and, but that's where the money is. So here we have a problem of high uncertainty. It's not well-defined huh? and we do not know too much. And, and here was, so many naive, hospitals over the world bought Watson services only to learn that he can't even do the job that a normal doctor can do. And the, so for instance, N.H. Anderson, one of the most respected cancer clinics in the US spent 62 million in order to find, before they found out that uh, what um, Isioni, the, the, the uh, head of the uh, Allen Institute for AI, uh, called, uh, he said, uh, IBM's Watson is the Donald Trump of the AI industry. <laughs> oh, no. All claims, no data. So okay. what this illustrates here, here is a supercomputer. The supercomputer can do some kind of jobs. For instance, playing games. Excellent. Yeah? But that doesn't mean it can do all kinds of jobs here, predicting cancer therapies. And IBM at the end, uh, after uh, cases were known where uh, the life of patients were threatened by uh, Watson's recommendations, IBM at the end declared that Watson would be at the level of a first year medical student, okay? And it was the best paid first year medical student ever. So one needs to, to, to distinguish between uh, a certain type of AI and the claims behind it. Here, the claims of IBM's advertising and PR department. And that's not what the engineers knew they can do. And that's marketing hype is one thing one needs to be aware that's happening. Most of AI applications are commercial or military. And certainly what the news covers is mostly commercial. 
and an analysis of uh, the uh, UK news from uh, the uh, so across all kind of left or right uh, oriented news showed that about 60% of all reports about AI are industry driven by journalists who uncritically basically repeat the claims of the industry. And you may remember that when Watson went into cancer, so Watson Oncology, that was in all news. The failure of Watson was not covered in this way by the news. So when Google announced that it could predict the uh, spread of the flu with Google flu trends, that was all over the news. Yeah. When it closed down because it failed, the media were silent. So we have a strong media bias. And that can be interpreted in a very way as media not independent, or the journalists are just naive and don't understand the stable work principle, or uh, in general, what AI can do and what it can't. Yeah, I I remember reading in your book about the uh, the Google flu uh, scenario that you're talking about and how it was hailed. Like that was the in particular, like Google was saying, like this is the end of science type of deal. We don't need science anymore because we can just look at the data and we can we can do a better job of predicting flu trends than the CDC. And um, it looked like it was working in the beginning, and then eventually it just fell apart when things when 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 the uh, conditions changed and the, um, the uh, machine learning algorithms weren't able to keep up with it. And this is, you know, this again goes back to the stable world principle. I mean, it's just, if you have nice, clearly defined uh, variables, then machines do a very good job of predicting what's gonna happen in the future. But then, I mean, the world's complex, it's chaotic. So you, um, yeah. I mean, in the human minds evolved to, yeah. to, to thrive in an environment that's complex and chaotic. And we are armed with all of with, with this arsenal to deal with um, to deal with a complex and chaotic world, and it has helped us to survive through you know <laughs> through the millennia. Um, and the machines just aren't uh, aren't uh, designed to do that. Right. And one can so, learn something from the human mind. Uh, in in that case of Google Flu tens, so my machine learning uh, uh, researchers and I. We, we started from a different point, namely, what does the human mind do in a situation that changes all the time? So humans do not use all the past data they can have, but maybe just the most recent one and predict it will uh, be the next time like the most recent one. And this recency heuristic, which is a kind of psychological AI, it's dedicated for getting, so you forget what you have known and ignore the information. And we showed over the, all the eight years where Google flu trend was predicting and across all the revisions they do, they did when they uh, got into troubles, the, this simple algorithm, which just uses one data point outperformed Google flu tens across all the eight years and reduced its error by half. So here we have a case where one data point 
leads to substantially better predictions than big data. And which is which is remarkable. <laughs> And it's an, an uncertainty yeah? that wouldn't yeah. happen in chess. Whatever, yeah. Yeah? So yeah. that's the point here. Yeah, that's that's uh, very interesting, and I, I definitely remember reading about that. And another thing uh, too, you had mentioned the recency bias, and I think that, that you uh, talk about that in your um, in chapter six about uh, big data as well. That's when it comes up, and I think that so when people think about uh, heuristics, uh, oftentimes they're led to um, talk about cognitive biases. And I'm a little bit guilty of this as well as looking at cognitive biases as kind of errors in reasoning. And I don't think it's a really good way to look at them. And here's a great example for a uh, great example you just mentioned with the recency bias, where it's actually advantageous over big data. And I think it's important for real uh, people to uh, just kind of realize that these cognitive biases that we do have, um, that we evolved to have them for a reason, that they helped us to survive in the past, and that they are there uh, for a very specific purpose. And they do lead to bad decisions sometimes. And it's important for us to be aware of them. But uh, I guess to view to view them as kind of errors in in the mind or something like that, I don't think that's I don't think that's uh, exactly correct is what I'm trying to get at. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. But uh, it's still the case that the majority of my colleagues in psychology, also in behavioral economics, they just believe that uh, heuristics would be always second best. And it's not true. So the recency heuristic labeled recency bias, the recency heuristic is a bad idea in a stable world. And it can be an excellent idea under uncertainty in an unstable world. That's the point. And mm -hmm. to ask this question, I call these, uh, uh, I use the term ecological rationality. So a heuristic is ecologically rational. In this case, it is uh, the recency heuristic is a rational way to do under uncertainty, but not in a stable certain world. That's the point. And the, the, the association between heuristics and biases misses this important point. It just thinks that heuristics are always yeah, uh, uh, linked to biases. It's just not true. And as you mentioned, there is a reason why the human mind evolved in its way. And we need to understand it rather than to, uh, uh, to laugh about it or to make mm -hmm. fun out of it. Yeah. It's... It is, and, and almost all of the so-called biases have this adaptive property. So it's like a toolbox to, uh, to adapt to certain types of situations. And, uh, and there's no single tool. And the, uh, the uh, so many of my colleagues think that probability theory or, or logic would be the single tool for everything. That's classical decision theory. And, it's just not the case. It works in a stable world, in a world of known risk, but not outside. If they would ever make decisions, like the one I did when I had to decide between uh, staying uh, in a career of music or trying, taking the risk to go to academia, I had no probabilities. And I could not know all the consequences. I could not know that I, if I take the risk, I had the chance to talk with you today. 
That's all out of this. And here, yeah. only heuristics help you. It's an illusion to think you could calculate in these situations. Every manager knows that. It's just that a group of academics, they have the dream of their own only hammer. And it's much more interesting to study what I call the adaptive toolbox and where this works. And then actually you can make use uh, reasonable recommendations like don't uh, rely on recency if you're in a stable world, but do it. If you're under uncertainty, and don't rely on big data if you are in a situation that is not stable, but tomorrow is not like yesterday. It should be so evident. Yeah, that, but, that's really interesting. That nuance is incredibly important, like you said, um, that the context, uh, how the type of thinking that you're going to be using, whether it's stable world or in the uh, real world or the complex scenario. Yeah, that, that's, uh, that's very interesting. Very interesting. And that's why the term is ecological rationality, not yeah. logical rationality. So logical rationality doesn't get you very far. It just may get you a Nobel Prize. <laughs> in, 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 or chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But we there's a reason why the human mind is content and context specific. So we pay attention to all kinds of little things. Why? Because mostly uncertainty. We look at someone else's face because we don't know what intention the person has. It's not written on the forehead. And we make inferences and they may fail, but we have to make them. Otherwise, we wouldn't understand much. Yeah, very. It's all, yeah, that's very interesting. I definitely, definitely learned something new. Uh, there. I, I tend to be more of the individual who makes decisions based off of like logic, science, something along those lines and not not thinking. I didn't even think about the ecological type of uh, rationality. Yeah. And wait a moment. Huh? The, the opposition that's being made between logic and heuristic is an opposition that a certain group of behavioral economists make, maybe psychologists. It's not made in the sciences. So uh, the, okay. For instance, Herbert Simon's big uh, step in programming was to introduce heuristics. So at, the, at his time, the idea was with logic, you could program computers, but then you just run into intractability. Logic doesn't help you very far, except it's a very tiny little small world in which you... So he, he, in order to search, to have a reasonable search in a huge space, you need heuristics. And it's called heuristic search. That gives you direction and ignores lots of that. So I'm just saying, in, in AI, heuristic was always a positive thing to make computers smart. While in that kind of psychology that associates heuristic with biases, it's always a negative thing. Mm -hmm. And, and the, this, this field don't really talk with one another. Yeah, and then, like you said before, that distinction is incredibly important. Uh, anyway, I uh, okay, so big data is clearly not the end of science. Science is still important. Uh, heuristics, uh, clearly very important still. Um, it doesn't, uh, you know, it's not quite the... Uh, the boogeyman with the cognitive biases and all of that that uh, 
people people have been led to believe. Um, it's definitely context important, like you said. But uh, chapter seven. Okay, so you talk about AI and then AI with bias and the importance of transparency uh, versus uh, black box scenarios, which we briefly briefly touched on earlier. So let's go ahead and uh, dig into a little bit about that. So how we have algorithms, and it's really really important that when you uh, when you when you release them into the world to go learn things, uh, these ma machine learning or deep neural networks, that they are not essentially baking in bias into the algorithm because that could have serious deleterious consequences on society if you think that they're operating unbiased, but in fact they that they yeah. they have bias in them. So uh, it's sometimes said, uh, but only by few people anymore, that algorithms would be neutral, objective, while humans are yeah, biased and uh, yeah, not objective. Uh, meanwhile, it's very clear that algorithms can be equally more or less uh, uh, biased uh, and, and for several reasons. That's the important thing to understand. So bias now means, uh, so there could be prejudices against women, against uh, blacks, against minority groups or whatever. Yeah? That's the meaning of biases. And the, so uh, the first source is data. So most of the uh, deep neural networks learn from the internet. So for instance, uh, GPT, a language system, GPT-2, a language learning system, got uh, most or all of its data from Reddit, which were mostly males and uh, between maybe 16 and 30 or so. So they get a certain type of, of language. And if there are biases there, the algorithm learns it. So that's one source, biases. Then there's another source. Uh, there, are, um, there are people behind the algorithms companies that want you, that want to manipulate you, as done with advertisers, they can introduce a new bias. And finally, most interesting, what I think is that algorithms uh, can actually perform better according to standard criteria in some situations when they increase the bias. So here's a simple example to understand that. So think about a, a categorization system that learns uh, from uh, pictures in the internet. And its task is to classify the situation that it sees uh, and also the gender of the person. So for instance, a woman in a kitchen or a man in a kitchen. And uh, so it learns from the pictures in the internet that maybe two thirds of all pictures of all people in a, in, a, in a kitchen are women and only one third men. So that's the bias it gets. But now the interesting part comes huh? in order to make predictions under certain uh, circumstances it does makes better the uh, prediction if it increases the bias. So here's how to understand that. Assume the, the network knows nothing except uh, women 
and kitchens. And learns knows that two thirds are um, women in kitchen. Now, on this minimum knowledge, if it would uh, make the guess that every person in a kitchen is female, that means increase the bias from two thirds of 100%, it would get two thirds right, okay? If it would try to be unbiased and classify two thirds, only two thirds as women and one third as males, you can make a quick calculation. It will not get uh, two thirds right, but only 56%. Uh, so by increasing the bias, it gets more right. So its performance looks better. So that's an extreme case, but it gives you the, the, the idea why there is. So there are several reasons. So if algorithms would be um, evaluated by uh, non-discrimination, then they would in this example, just bet the two thirds are female and one third is male. But if they are evaluated by correct predictions and then a bias helps. It's very interesting. I would not expect bias to help. <laughs> so that's a bit that's about that's a bit counterintuitive to me. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. I mean, would you say in general though? So so it's context. I mean, the context again is important. Or in general, should we try to be developing these algorithms where, or AI that doesn't have bias in it, or is it very much dependent upon the scenario that you're trying to use you uh, use the AI for? Yeah, I think we need both work on people and also yeah. on algorithms to reduce the biases yeah? because it, it's everywhere. It's just the illusion that algorithms uh, would would be bias free, or if we only would have better data, it would be bias free. That's not sufficient. And and uh, once again, the uh, the uh, biases will. Uh, are biases against minorities, against uh, women. Uh, that's something where algorithms may help or may not help, but we could do it with people directly. For instance, the, so we had until uh, some decades ago uh, in the big symphony orchestras were very few females and fewer then you could argue that only men can play so excellent to be in a big philharmonic orchestra, but that's not the case. What has been done? One has in the uh, when uh, people applied, one put in a curtain so that the jury couldn't see what the gender is on the other side, and even put a a, a, a rug there so you couldn't hear. Whereas you couldn't make an inference from the shoe, the sound of the shoes to uh, the gender. So, and then suddenly more women were hired. So there are many possibilities yeah, to actually do something. And we can start with us and not just hope that Agris can do, solve all of, of our problem. Yeah. So that's basically the, the that's another big issue. So the idea that every, every problem, every human problem is a bug that needs an algorithm or an app to be fixed. That works in some situation, but in many situations, it's a, uh, 
uh, it distracts us from the real solution and from the real problems. Yeah, I definitely, uh, I definitely can see that. And there was a, there was also uh, one case that you were, and it's sticking out in my head right now in that uh, in your book is the one about the uh, either it was a Google scientist or a Google engineer who basically brought the bias into one of Google's algorithms to light. She subsequently was fired. There was outrage from the Google community. It was all over the news. I don't I don't recall all of the details, but I do remember that being. I think a um, a wake up call for a lot of people about how these algorithms or these AIs that are being developed with that we need to be very careful with them. And then also there was another one where it was using an algorithm to, you know, the predictive policing that you were talking about and how that was shut down as well. Um, so I mean, you have all of these, you have all of these cases where people come out, you know, they get a bunch of media coverage about, oh, how wonderful all of these. Um, all of these systems are and they're deeply biased and they end up not working the way that we want yeah. them to right yeah and a little bit critical thinking would help here oh absolutely uh, we, we have uh, so so people are uh, so in my observation most people don't really care about all of the questions they just want to use the app the instagram or whatever they have and they use it for their purpose. And then there are some who uh, think a little bit more, and, the, and there are two poles. There are those who have faith, faith in singularity, faith in general I, I, AI, as in that uh, soon we can lean back huh, and let our uh, Alexa, that has morphed into a super intelligence, make all our decisions. And for some reason, these people think that's a great idea. Uh, for me, it's a horror scenario because that would make us, yeah, why would this super intelligence uh, advise us? They don't see any reason why it would stay our certain. Uh, so that's that's one reason. On the other side, there are people uh, who uh, look with lots of anxiety and fear, not faith, on what's happening. And one of the best representatives, I think, is, is uh, Shoshana Zuboff with her great book on surveillance capitalism. Yeah. But what both sides have in common is a faith in the ability of AI that I do not share. So uh, as if AI really could become this big threat or this big opportunity. And, and here the stable world principle helps you. It will become a great evolution in stable worlds, but not in the rest. And for all the reasons yeah. we discussed, you know, if the future is different, the big data doesn't help you. Yeah, I'm I'm personally cautiously optimistic about uh, artificial intelligence. I mean, all of those. I mean, I've read a, I've read a number of books and articles and things yeah. like that on the topic, and it definitely could become a like Terminator dystopian type scenario if we're not careful. I think yeah. that there is definitely wonderful potential there, but with any new technologies, there's always going to be pros and cons, and you just need to be careful how it's used. And if you let a 
you know, if, it, if we develop a true AI someday that can think for itself and is sentient, I mean, that, and it's just better, better than us in every way, um, it very, it very quickly could turn into a nightmare scenario for humanity. Yeah. So, but, but also wait uh, <clears throat> to, uh, to that uh, deep learning would turn into a system that can think by itself. That would demand yeah, a huge jump in discovery in software development that we don't see. Deep learning will, yeah, if computational power doubles, will just go faster. Mm -hmm. But yeah. will not be able to think. Like us, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and, the, uh, and it will be um, it will be uh, yeah fall prey to to the uh, to correlations which are not relevant. So that's what I call the Russian tank fallacy. So it will discover things that help to classify correctly but are irrelevant from the point of view of a human. And uh, so. Uh, that, for instance, in uh, in the uh, uh, neural networks were used to classify uh, objects like school buses from other objects that you would need to have an autonomous car. Um, who knows then stop if there's a school bus? And uh, the uh, a number of studies that use so-called adversarial algorithms. These are algorithms that exploit uh, the limited capabilities of neural networks and create pictures that the neural network thinks it's a school bus. Mm -hmm. And if you look at them, for instance, American school bus are, are uh, yellow and have uh, black uh, corners. And uh, one of these adversarial algorithms developed a very simple picture, which are just horizontal stripes, yellow, black, yellow, black, yellow, black, yellow, black. And the neural network who has learned in a test set of pictures to identify school buses precisely thinks that these stripes are with a 99% probability a school bus. So that just illustrates that it has no concept. It identifies correlations. In that case, probably it's about colors who go together. And if you repeat the same colors more and more and more, then it gets more certain that it's a school bus. So these kind of results that are well known in among engineers who construct uh, deep neural networks or adversarial algorithms huh, help you to understand what it can do, how it functions, and what it cannot do. It can detect correlations between pixels or groups of pixels in this case, yeah, but it has no concept of a school bus. And the same, another yeah. example, a famous one, if you repeat uh, even zebra, zebra, huh? mm -hmm. and if you add, uh, if you add um, the uh, two more legs to the zebra, so a six-leg zebra, the neural network gets more competent, confident that's a zebra. 
It has all of the stripes. Yeah. Okay. It's about the same thing. Yeah. So these systems came with lots of computation power, classify things very correctly, unless some unexpected things happen or another algorithm finds out what it is looking for and then creates pictures that it confuses. Yes, that's very interesting. Yeah, it's just clearly, clearly a long way to go still. Um, yeah. a bunch of a bunch of bugs that need to be worked out. But also yeah. it also shows yeah. that, that these types of AI are more complementary to humans. So a human driver would not confuse <laughs> uh, yellow and black stripes with a school bus. Human drivers make other errors. Yeah? So what, what errors do we? We are tired. We are people are drunk. We are on drugs or uh, just on our cell phone while driving, texting. But that's a human errors. And uh, deep neural networks wouldn't make these errors. They make other errors. And so one can also see that if you can get these things together, that's what I mean with psychological AI, then yeah. we can improve on something. But just deep learning, deep learning will be a, a cul-de-sac. It, uh, it will just generate, make more faster of the same thing. It will not lead to an understanding of what a school bus is or any other object. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm, make, that make, makes perfect sense to me. Super interesting. And yeah, I, I like what you said there about how it's important to look at it as being complementary and not replacing like it can enhance our understanding of the world in certain aspects or help us to make um, better decisions in certain aspects, but it's definitely not going to replace us, yeah. at least not anytime soon. And, that's and I don't know if we would ever want it to. <laughs> so uh, anyway, uh, towards the end of your book, you have uh, a number of chapters there that are super interesting where you talk about social media, uh, deep fakes and then trustworthiness. So something that AI and I've done some reading on it. I don't know your thoughts on it. Um, is very good at doing is uh, creating these deep uh, deep fakes, where it's essentially creating videos that look like some prominent individual mm -hmm. spreading some sort of message that could be good or could be bad, but still it's not the person saying this, or it's a doctored image that looks like a, a genuine image. And I know one thing that we've probably all taken away from this pandemic that we've, we're basically at the tail end of now, I guess we're not completely out of it, but through the bulk of it is just the rampant spread of false information online, particularly on social media spaces. And now we have uh, AI creating these deep fakes um, and how do you how do you discern fact from fiction? So you go into a little bit in the book about trustworthiness and how exactly it is you should be uh, reading between the lines on any sort of articles that you come across or like videos. Mm -hmm. So perhaps we could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah. So uh, certainly the uh, deep fakes are a fundamental problem because it, they will they, they may lead to an erosion of our uh, of the difference between facts and fakes. So if you can tell the difference anymore, then what is the difference? 
So on the other side, we can do some things. So if we make us smarter, and not only being aware that might be a deep fake, but uh, for instance, when uh, uh, reading a website, and uh, there are a number of techniques that have been shown to work, but still few people know this. So for instance, if you want to judge the trustworthiness of a website, so say uh, the, uh, the example I use is uh, a website that wants to tell you something about minimal wage and discusses all kinds of things and, and ends up with a conclusion. Now, the, uh, how to judge whether this is trustworthy? Is there a scientist or economist behind it? Or is there a PR agency behind it who gets paid by someone? So that's the question. So in one study by colleagues, at Stanford in the educational department, they were having uh, over 3,000 um, undergraduates and high school students and gave them these websites and said, what do you think? How can you find out whether this is trustworthy? Most of them had no idea. And they were just looking, say, on the how cool the website looks whether there is someone with maybe a PhD in that, whether it has references, all easy things to fake or to produce. The, uh, actually, in this study, 96% did not know how to tell, uh, how to find out the trustworthiness of person. So, and some of the techniques that the Stanford colleagues teach is are the following. First, lateral reading. So what most digital natives do, they read uh, a website like you read a newspaper from the beginning till the end. And digital technology offers you something easy, an easy alternative, namely to just read a little bit until you find out what's the issue and then go into About Us and leave the page and find out who's behind it. So that's called yeah. lateral <laughs> reading and not just horizontal. Uh, or, sorry, reading. <laughs> yeah, ver vertical, <laughs> vertical, yeah. yeah. It's, uh, so that's one thing. But most of the, in their study, most of the digital natives have, don't know this. Nobody teaches them. It's a very simple technique. So. Uh, professional fact checkers do this. That's the technology. So why don't we teach uh, uh, kids in school what professional fact checkers know? Another technique, which is equally simple, is uh, called uh, click restraint. So don't click at the first entry or the second, but read all the snippets and maybe go on the second page. If your first click goes in the wrong direction, you will be in the wrong direction in the first place. So, and one of the reasons is because, yeah, uh, so an estimated 50% of all clicks are on the first entries. And uh, most people think the first entry is the most relevant one or the, the most popular one. It's neither of that. 
It's the entry that Google or another search machine thinks it makes most money from. Among others, the advertisers will pay mostly. Yeah, yeah. All. yeah. It's some sort of game. There's an entire industry, the SEO or search right. engine optimization yeah. industry, where mm -hmm. it's just some sort of game they play with right. the algorithm in order to yeah. push the search results up because they know exactly that people would rather click towards the top because they think incorrectly that it's more popular or more important or something. But here, a little bit critical thinking will help. Huh? These are all Absolutely. different things. Huh? Lateral reading, huh? click restraint. They are not difficult. Huh? to do, but they are still not known to most of the digital natives and, and the rest. So there are a number of things to know, and they're all interesting. So, and also the, uh, the few people know that your smart TV will probably record all personal conversations that you conduct in front of the TV in your living room or your bedroom and send them to third parties. So why don't people know that? If you read the Samsung uh, uh, <clears throat> a fine print, you will read it there. So we have a kind of, sometimes also kind of collective blindness. We won't just use, we have, it's convenient and so on. We don't want to know this, huh? how yeah. we're being exploited. All of this is like buried in the terms of use usually too. I mean, pages and pages. And I think you briefly talk about this in your book about how you have these technology companies gathering your data and it's all, they can do whatever they want with it. And it's buried in the terms of use. It's like 20 pages long and nobody's yeah, ever going right. to read that because it's the print's super tiny. And yeah. And that's one of the non-democratic parts of how, where the internet went, huh? namely, uh, that you cannot inform yourself because it's made deliberately long and deliberately uh, hard to understand. So one group of researchers had estimated if you would read all the terms to which you agree and they are legally binding for you, you would need 30 days per year just reading the terms. This is not what a law should allow to make the uh, uh, the, the 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 users uh, uh, to make it to make it impossible for the users to, yeah. to inform themselves. It could be done on a page the relevant issues. And for instance, in my work with the German government, we've asked the, for a, a regulation that all these terms of use should be on one printed page, so 500 words. That can be done, but there will be strong resistance. Interesting. So uh, my takeaway from everything that you've just said here about um, trustworthiness is that critical, and I might be a little biased here, um, is that critical a little critical thinking could go a long way uh, right now, <laughs> yeah. uh, where we're at in society. Yes, and that's what I mean with the term, how to stay smart in a smart yeah. world. Yeah? How to think critically, yeah? Yeah. rather than lean back and be entertained. That's always nice to be entertained yeah? and leaning back, but you shouldn't lose 
your critical thinking. Otherwise, you will not be the object of AI, but you will be the object of the organizations and corporations behind AI, and also the governments who are much more associated with tech companies as people want to know. Snowden has shown that for the US and also for, for the UK. And it's not just China where state and, and tech companies are very close. It's also in mm -hmm. our Western world. And we don't want to slide into a direction that China has is now openly going to a system where everyone gets a score according to one's political, social, and the entire digital fingerprint. And then one gets goodies or one is punished. It's like the FICO score in the US, but now about everything. And, uh, yeah. and that's total governmental surveillance. Yeah, that's, um, that's a bit dystopian in my opinion. I mean, but then again, that's, you know, I'm biased towards more democratic environment, but yeah, that's a, that, that just sounds a little bit terrifying to me. Yes, <laughs> but... having, having a social score. So, yeah. And I think you even referenced when you talk about what's going on in China, you talk about that Black Mirror episode where, yeah. and I've seen that particular episode where it's called um, Nosedive. Nosedive is the yeah. episode. Yeah. Everybody yeah. should watch that. And then after you watch that, understand that having some sort of social score or ranking system uh, like that for absolutely every aspect of society is probably a, a terrifying prospect. And, mm -hmm. uh, and I know to a degree we have that already with Yelp and Google reviews and things like that. But I mean, for absolutely everything that you do in society, <clears throat> excuse me, that sounds like a terrible, uh, a terrible idea, in my opinion. Yes, but uh, to me too, yes. But we need to do something that it doesn't happen. There are too yeah. many interested. So there are the big data brokers like Axiom or Oracle. They collect data about everything they can have their hands on and sell it. And it just would uh, integrate all of that into one score, then we would have, yeah, it would be close yeah. to the Chinese model. So uh, yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> stay vigilant, think critically. Mm -hmm. um, Gerd, it's been a wonderful conversation. I just want to thank you so much for coming on. I learned an incredible amount from your book and it's taught me um, how to think differently about a number of different aspects of psychology that I just didn't question before. So uh, thank you for that. And I always, uh, for people who write books, one thing I always wanna ask, when I, I ask right at the end is, how can your book positively impact somebody's life? Like, why should somebody read your book? I mean, it's obviously, I found it interesting and I have ideas, but I'm just curious to hear from you. Why, uh, why should somebody read your book? How can it help them? Yeah, uh, the book helps you to open your eyes and see through things which are veiled and hidden, and also remind you that it's all in your own hands and your own minds to do something, to use AI in the way it was originally dreamed in the 1990s. The dream was that by means of mainly the internet, and, uh, we can send 
information, trustworthy information to everyone on the globe. And people will finally be able to find their ways out of a world of lies, uh, non-truths and deception. And the internet will provide, so the tool for the enlightenment. So the information revolution, as it was also called, uh, has happened to a degree, but also we have had a disinformation yeah, revolution at the same time. And so the so my own dream is to do everything to really get back to uh, have an internet and also have AI that is in the surface of people and not in the disservice of people and in the service of disinformation. We can do better than uh, what we have today. Absolutely, and there it is. I think that's wonderful. It's a fantastic message. And uh, so go buy his book, uh, How to Stay Smart in a Smart World. Gerd, where can people find it? Uh, can people connect with you online? Do you have a website? Do you have any social media? Yeah, you just type in my name here, yeah? Gerd Gigerenser, then you find everything from actually an, an old uh, video from my time as a musician. Okay. <laughs> so we did the first TV spot in the US for the VW Volkswagen uh, Rabbit, then called Golf, VW Golf. So if you put in Gigerenser VW Golf, you'll find a red car. I'm on the steering wheel and I'm the guy with the banjo. <laughs> okay. So, so you find that and funny. as much you find all my my, uh, my popular books like Gut Feelings, Risk Savvy. And if you, for those who are in, uh, interested in the work behind that, you'll find my, my scientific books. All right, wonderful. That's all right, sounds good. Hmm? Yeah, that. Sounds good to me. I'm definitely going to dig into some of, uh, more of your uh, of your more popular books, not the academic ones, maybe the academic ones eventually, but uh, I'm definitely some of the other ones sound super interesting to me. So I'm definitely going to add them to my library. But again, I just want to thank you so much for uh, agreeing to uh, have this discussion with me. I found it uh, to be fantastic. And for uh, for everyone stopping by and listening, uh, tuning in or watching. Uh, thank you so much for um, for joining us. And uh, stay tuned for more great content moving forward. Take care. Yeah. Thank you for reading my book. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All right, bye now.